You're listening to episode 106 of the Tennis Files podcast, mental and emotional training for tennis with Dr. Peter Scales. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everybody, my name is Mirban Iranshad, host of the Tennis Files podcast, and on the show, I interview the top tennis experts, pros, and coaches to help you improve your tennis game. And today I have a great interview for you with Dr. Peter Scales, and his expertise is in the mental and emotional side of tennis. And he's written a great book called Mental and Emotional Training for Tennis, which I have been reading lately and really been enjoying. And I've been learning a lot about the principles and foundations that you need and that both junior players and adults need to really be successful both in tennis and in life and to enjoy both. So I really want to jump into this interview uh, with Peter, and so I don't want to waste any time. So without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Peter Scales. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm really excited and honored to have Dr. Peter Scales, a tennis coach and expert on positive youth movement, uh, development rather, on the show today to talk about mental and emotional training for tennis uh, and his new book, which is titled uh, what I just mentioned, The uh, Mental and Emotional Training for Tennis, Compete, Learn, Honor. And uh, I've really been having a great time and, and really been enriched uh, with my knowledge for uh, really what it takes takes to develop great tennis players and junior players through this book. And um, I'm really, like I said, uh, glad to have uh, Peter on the show because we're going to go into uh, some very important points that may be, uh, that will be life-changing for anybody that uh, you've come into contact with or that you're trying to develop uh, in the tennis world. And to give you a bit of background about uh, Peter, he is currently the head JV tennis coach for girls and boys at Parkway South High in Manchester, Missouri. And he's been there since 2008. Peter received his doctorate in child and family studies from Syracuse University, and he is also a USPTA certified tennis teaching pro, and he's also certified as a double goal coach by the Positive Coaching Alliance. Peter is internationally recognized as one of the world's foremost authorities on positive youth development, and he has actually conducted research studies in more than 30 countries and published more than 200 scholarly articles, chapters, and books, which uh, I I find fascinating. Uh, And in addition to all of this. Peter is also a very accomplished competitive tennis player as well, and he's achieved uh, some very impressive rankings. And he's been quoted in hundreds of media outlets, including the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, US News and World Report, and USA Today. So Peter, I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast, and it's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks, Mervon. Great to be here uh, talking with you. Thanks, Peter. Same here. And so I want to dive right into your background first off, and I wanted to ask you, why did you decide 
decide to focus your career on the mental and emotional side of tennis? Well, you know, this is a, a late development. Uh, I, I came to tennis um, at 42, and I had I had played judo in, in high school. I had played basketball. I was always into sports, but uh, I didn't really start picking up tennis until my wife taught me uh, at the age of 42, and I just fell in love with it. And what I discovered, which was uh, both interesting and embarrassing to me as a psychologist, was that even at the age of 42, I had to go through the developmental stages of being immature about my tennis game and and growing into more maturity about it. I was angry at myself. Um, I would throw a racket. I just was beside myself if things didn't go well in the tennis game. And of course, they didn't because I was a learner, a beginning player. And it, it shocked me in a way that someone at a mature age of life could have to go through these same stages that most players go through when they take up the game in childhood. Um, so it was fascinating to me that um, that my mental and emotional responses to the game would often dictate what I did physically. And of course, it affected the game. It affected the enjoyment of the game. It affected the people I played with. Um, so I had to, you know, shape up or ship out. And uh, from both a personal and a professional standpoint, that was a really interesting introduction to the game. The mental and emotional was right in my face right from the beginning. Yeah, Peter, that's very interesting. And it is really actually fascinating that, uh, I mean, I imagine that probably in other aspects of your life, like you are pretty calm if, if something happens, uh, you know, negative outcome, I suppose. So, I mean, is this pretty much universal that if, if you uh, experience a new sport or something that you're, you're always going to go through these stages or it, do, will some people be able to naturally kind of handle it calmly or, or how does that work? Well, I, I, I think there is a, a range, you know, of, uh, of responses. Uh, people are, are different and, and not everybody reacts the same way. But human beings are, are competitive animals. I think one of the folks in the tennis summit this year said that um, we're, we're competitive animals just by nature. And and psychologically, uh, there, are, there are three core kind of um, needs that human beings have. Uh, and tennis really collides with, with those needs in a, in a very strong way and makes it, um, it, makes it challenging. Uh, one is, and we call these the ABCs of self-determination theory for people who are interested in looking further uh, into it. Um, ABCs. A is autonomy. Uh, to what extent do you have some control over a situation, some influence, or are things out of control? Uh, B, belonging. Uh, do people care about you? Do you care about people? Are you liked? Are you loved? Those kinds of things. And C is competence, uh, which speaks for itself. So the reactions that people have to mistakes, to failure in a lot of things and just about anything, in tennis included, uh, always 
circle around one or more of those three needs. Are they afraid of things getting out of control? Are they afraid people won't like them because of what they're doing? Are they afraid people will think they're incompetent because of of how they're acting or behaving in that situation? Um, So all sorts of anger, fear uh, get driven back to one or more of those three things. And because we're competitive animals um, in tennis, uh, particularly in, in singles when you're just out there on your own against uh, an opponent, um, it, it, it matters. Uh, we, we care about this. It, it, people sometimes um, have an easier time dealing with the reactions emotionally and mentally uh, if they don't really care as much. But if you care, if it matters to you, then uh, it's going to be a challenge at some point for you to come to terms with how are you going to deal with the reality that you're never going to be perfect at this game? You're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to have experiences of losing. So how are you going to do that, deal with that, and maintain the fun and enjoyment in a game, which is what you were attracted to in the first place, and which is part of why you care so much about it? So that's the challenge, I think, for all of us, regardless of what our you know basic genetic constitution is and our predisposition to to be calm or high strung, uh, we all at some level are dealing with those psychological needs and the challenge to those needs that that a tennis match um, sets up for us. Yeah, that is really fascinating, Peter. And uh, I can see tennis easily affecting uh, the A, B, and Cs. I mean, you you talk about uh, being able to uh, have a sense of belonging, like maybe if, if if you're not able to compete at the level you want and you feel like you, like you're not playing well on the court, then you feel like you don't belong. And uh, having the control over your game, a lot of times we feel like we don't have that sort of control and the competency that we want. And so that that's really right. really fascinating stuff there. Uh, and I wanted to back up a little bit too, Peter, to kind of get a sense of um, you know how how you got your start playing tennis, and then also maybe talk about your uh, competitive career as well, because I know that you you also uh, play tournaments and such. Yeah, uh, well, I did. And- until uh, injuries got the the best of me, um, but that's that's part of what I enjoy about coaching is I still have my hand in it and I'm still out on the court. Um, but it, you know, I just I I, I felt like uh, I fell in love with it. it. It for me, and as it is for you, I'm sure, and the other people who are, uh, people who are listening to your podcast, they're passionate about tennis. They have fallen in love with it, and uh, it, it's it's a relationship, just just like a relationship with with a person. In that, in that sense, it, it, it did something, it responded to something um, in my soul. Uh, and I just grinned and grinned. And, you know, when I first started playing, uh, my wife saw me on the other side, my wife Martha on the other side of the net, and I'm grinning like crazy. And at first, she didn't know if I was squinting into the sun or maybe, you know, just kind of teasing if I made a good shot and I was grinning, you know, kind of, you know, hey, I'm so good. I was just having a lot of fun. I, I just loved being out there. And uh, the the pace, the the dynamism of it, you know, it's an open skill sport. Um, judo, basketball, the other sports I was attracted to um, in my youth, um, very dynamic. They're not closed skills. They're open skills. You constantly got to be adjusting and adapting. You know, you're, you're, you're improvising like, like playing jazz. Uh, you have a structure. You have a plan, but you're improvising, and that that plan has to go out the window 
sometimes and you go to plan B, C, D, and then <laughs> whatever you have to do to get the ball over the net one more time. And all of that, the challenge of all of that, the physicality, the mental, um, the, the physics and the geometry of, of, of the court uh, and the ball and the racket, it just all appealed to me in one big package. So uh, it just made me happy. I had fun with it. I love to hear that passion for the game and the happiness yeah. that it brings you. And yeah, I mean, there's just so many facets, as you mentioned, to master that it's really, you're not going to be bored with it. I mean, you know, there's the technical, emotional, mental, physical, everything. And um, as far as um, how we are uh, focusing on the mental and emotional side for on junior players, like, wh- what do you think is the biggest problem with that? Because I mean, clearly, your, your book, Mental and Emotional Training for Tennis, has a focus on, on the, the junior side. And I was wondering, wondering how well you think we're currently doing and coaching in that area well you know it's it, the, the real challenge is the is the the culture of winning you know the emphasis on on w's and l's that is the biggest challenge and it's the biggest threat to the inherent enjoyment to the fun you know that kids have when they first get exposed when adults have when they first get exposed to, to tennis you know the, the the dynamism of it so the the, the, the challenge it, it, it's this kind of a Zen um, issue. Uh, I, I played judo, as I mentioned, in, in high school, and I, I was good at it. Um, and it, it forced me to learn that the, the central component of doing well at judo was not to fight the strength of your opponent, but to use the strength against them by inviting it. Um, so you, you don't focus on beating the opponent. Even though you want to win, you don't focus on beating the opponent. And in a, in a similar kind of um, seemingly contradictory way, the, the best way that juniors can increase their chance of winning, and, and adult players too, is to not focus on winning, is to focus on all of the process, uh, all of the, um, the, the, the physical movements that you're making, your breathing, the plan you have, the, the what is happening right now now in this moment, focusing on being grateful to be out there. All of these things that keep you away from yourself and your desire to feed your ego by winning. And and that is a really difficult uh, thing to do. And that's what I spend most of my mental and emotional coaching doing is trying to uh, trying to work on that understanding and get it get players to really um, to really incorporate this and integrate it into into true understanding, not just lip service. That the more they focus on and worry about and think about and talk about winning and losing, the less likely they are to play their best. Yeah, I, I I can't agree more with that. I mean, I bring this story up sometimes on podcasts, but uh, in my very first year of playing college tennis, I I played my very first match in uh, at Cornell University in a tournament there, and uh, I I I was up six two five one, I think, and then I immediately thought about thought about how cool it would be to win my very first match, mm-hmm. and, and uh, of course, you know, everyone knows the end of the story. I lost, and then my coach sat me down and said, "You need to focus." 
focus on the process, not the results. And I think it's really important, like you said, to really focus on your whole development and and focus on improving every single day. And and uh, you have a, a wonderful chapter uh, entitled "Learn," where you you go into that further, and we'll we'll touch uh, upon that a bit more too throughout the interview. But um, I also want to ask you. I mean, right off the bat, with with your book, you mentioned the importance of honor and respecting your opponents. And why why is why should honor be the foundation of every tennis player? Well, the you you, you can't learn uh, everything you have to learn if you're not humble. If if you're not approaching uh, the task with uh, humility and curiosity and respect for what your opponent can teach you, what every uh, every person you come in contact with who's played the game can teach you, um, you you just cannot develop. And if you cannot learn the to the fullest of your potential, then you can't compete to the fullest of your potential, which is why, although the, the subtitle of the book is written, Compete, Learn, Honor, um, I emphasize them in coaching uh, in the reverse order, honor, learn, compete. Uh, it, it, it all starts with, with understanding um, that the, the key part of honor is, is, is to appreciate that the game is bigger than you are. That, that's all, you know, a, a, a first step in, in what I said earlier about trying to get your ego out of it, trying to not take these things personally, which is what makes you throw a racket. Uh, you took it personally. And, and, and part of the way to begin constructing a different attitude about it and a different emotional apparatus um, toward the game is to really come to believe genuinely that the game is more important than you are. The, you know, Michael Jordan wrote his book for the love of the game. And, and, and in my book, I, I quote Boris Becker, you know, uh, whose, whose quote is, is emblazoned above well, one of the courts in, in Wimbledon at Wimbledon. And, and it's basically um, that he, he, he loves to win. He can take the losing, but most of all, he loves to play win or lose. He, he loves to play. And, and that is, that is the key. The game, loving the game more than how you perform at it is, is the key that's going to unlock the ability to be calmer when things go wrong, which means you're going to be more able to see the options that you have and the adjustments that you can make when things go wrong in a match. Or in the case of your story there, um, make you more able to see what you have to continue doing when you're obviously having success, 6-1-5-1. You're not going to change that winning game and you're going to focus on the, the point you're playing right now, the shot you're making right now. And and a, a good deal of this extends then to your opponent and how you think about your opponent and what you wish from your opponent. If you start wishing for your opponent to double fault, you're not honoring the game. And now you're placing your desire to win at whatever cost above the game being more important. The mentally stronger approach is to wish for your opponent to hit a really fabulous serve so that you've got to hit a really fabulous return so it that it brings out the very best in you that's what you should be wishing for the challenge yeah yeah i love that peter and you know i'll, I'll admit right now you know I've, I've had several instances where i've i've been thinking oh yeah this is a huge point i hope that my opponent double faults but i think it's much better and makes you tougher as well to have that warrior mentality or you know positive mentality that uh, i, I want to be able to play my best and 
and let my opponent hit a great serve and so that I can perform and respond uh, it, yeah. with my best. And I really do, uh, really do love that. And um, also a follow up point about um, loving the game and the importance of that. Um, I mean, I, I always perform my best when I'm out there and, and feeling grateful for the opp- opportunity to play tennis, you know, when a lot of people don't have the same opportunity for whatever reason. And uh, I think gratitude is a huge part of that, that that you mentioned, and it's very helpful. So I think uh, if you're ever having a tough day on the court, just remember that you are very lucky to play this game and even have a racket. So, um, but yeah, you yeah. know, I, I want to just pick up on that, Narbon, because that in, in a book, I, I relay one of the things I do with my players um, is I when 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 it's a changeover, I might call them over to the fence uh, for a little chat, and I rarely um, I rarely talk about technique in a match situation. That's not usually a good time to do that. Mm-hmm. I sometimes talk about strategy with them, uh, but more often than not, to your point about the gratitude, um, I just tell them to look around, look up at the sky, uh, no matter what the weather is. Look up at the sky, appreciate it. Look out at the stands and all the people who are here. Um, look at you being able to run around out here and and hit this ball around, play this game. It's a great day to be playing tennis, isn't it? How lucky are you? And they look at me sometimes like, Coach Pete, uh, help us. That doesn't help. <laughs> that doesn't help us. But actually, it does because they smile, they laugh, it loosens them up, and and it, it helps remind them that this is a game. All we're doing is getting feedback here about how we're doing in the game. We're having fun playing the game. We're learning. Hopefully, we're learning during the match, not just before it. We're approaching the match uh, with gratitude that we're able to be out here given the chance to solve the puzzle that is the match. Some days the puzzle is you. You've got to solve yourself. Some days the puzzle is more your opponent. Some days a little bit of both. But it's always a puzzle you're trying to solve that day. And uh, you're lucky to be out there. So I just sometimes, you know, just tell them to look around, you know, breathe in, you know, through the nose, out through the mouth and be grateful for where they are and go back in and, and enjoy playing and enjoy trying to figure out what the key to the match today is with the game you brought to the court today. And and that usually helps. Great stuff, Peter. So kind of relatedly, uh, if you if there's a player, players out there who actually have been playing a lot and they end up in this period, this uh, state where they actually uh, don't like the game and they're frustrated. I mean, uh, this happens to some of us sometimes we feel burned out. I mean, what kind of tips do you have for us to kind of get back uh, on track mentally and emotionally to uh, to again have to again enjoy the game and and uh, play it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's some people play too much, uh, or they play too much of the wrong kind of situation. Um, and let me let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if if all you're doing is playing tournament tennis and you're not playing um, practice sets, enjoyment sets uh, with your hitting buddies, you're not taking lessons, you're not going out all by yourself just with, you know, uh, a bucket of balls, uh, then you may be you may be overdoing the stress level on um, uh, on on yourself physically and mentally. If you've if you've gotten to that that point of feeling frustrated, burned out, tired, lack of enjoyment, kind of irritable and irritating to other people <laughs> to be around. Uh, that's that's usually a good sign that you're doing too much generally with tennis or too much of that wrong thing. 
And so if if you're the kind of person who needs to play frequently, just for all sorts of reasons, uh, mental, emotional, and physical, uh, fine. But vary the the context. Uh, don't play in that extra tournament this month. Uh, play with some hitting buddies instead. Play some basketball. Take you know a, a, a bike, do some biking. Do something physical, but something that's a little different. Do some cross training, and don't even call it cross training. Just cross fun. Go out and do something different. The other thing is, no matter what the frequency issue is, no matter what the context is, um, if you're burned out, you've got to revisit um, both your goals and your systems. Um, this gets to you know James Clear and his you know Atomic Habits mm-hmm. book. Um, yeah, uh, you've talked about that book. It's a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, people who haven't been exposed to it, it it's super. Um, and and one of the insights that I uh, of the many that he has that I love is that people who are successful and unsuccessful often have the same goals, you know. But the successful people have constructed better systems, uh, and they are focusing on the process rather than the goal, the outcome. What we're, what we talked about earlier, uh, they have set up in tennis terms. They've set up their lessons, their study, their practices, their rehearsals, um, and their mental coaching of themselves to embrace challenge. All that's the system that supports them moving toward their goal. And so I would say, in addition to checking out the frequency and the kind of context you're playing tennis in, if you're burned out, re-examine what your goals are in tennis and whether you have too many outcome results goals and not enough process goals and re-examine what your system is. You know, what? how, how is the plan, you know, being, what's the plan that you've set up to reach those goals? Or are you just kind of haphazard about it? Or are you in a rut and you haven't revisited? uh, Is this working? You know, do I have the right goals? And do I have the right system to reach those right goals? So so I would say a combination of all those things, check out your frequency, check out your goals and the system you have to reach your goals. Great stuff again, Peter. Can you give us maybe a a simple example of of maybe a a good goal and like a a good system for reaching that goal? Well, you can you let's Let's take a um, well, let's take a technique goal and a mental goal. Sure. Okay, um, so a a good a good goal is one that you can reach for starters. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean you shouldn't have dream goals out there. But you part of the problem that that a lot of us have in in the rest of our lives and not only in tennis is that we're trying to control things that are not controllable. And winning is not under your control. You can influence it a little bit, but it's not under your control. So setting a goal that you're going to win this tournament or even you're going to win this match uh, is not a goal that you can reach. Uh, Setting a goal that you are going to go for your serve at 30 all is an achievable goal. Mm -hmm. Setting a goal that you're going to put more pressure on your opponent by serving and volleying at least twice during every service game is an achievable goal. Setting a goal that you and your doubles partner are going to talk to each other in between points after every point is an achievable goal. 
people. That may be too much to start with for a lot of doubles partners who don't really talk, especially at the you know three o, three five, even four o level. Uh, so start with as I have my players start with at least talk on on game points. Make that a goal that you're going to talk to each other about what we're going to do in this next point, and then start expanding that number of times that you talk with each other between points to the to the to the point you reach where you're doing it on all points. Those are all process things. A mental um, process thing might be I want to develop a mistake ritual that helps me get get rid of my emotional reaction right after the point and in the 20 25 seconds I have to get ready. So, I'm going to blow on my hands and crumple up my excuse and toss it away. And we have an excuse box that I created um, to actually <laughs> to literally have nice. players write down their, you know, excuse of the day because we all have excuses, our relationships, what's going on at school, what's going on at work, money, just what whatever. Uh, we there are things that distract us. And I say to them, the tennis court is an excuse-free zone, and so we put the excuse boxes there. We have a big one and a small one, and they can literally do that or they can just, you know, after a mistake, instead of saying an excuse, you know, uh, they can just mentally write it down, blow on their hands, toss it metaphorically into the box and be done with it. And But that you've got to learn how to do that. And that's so that's a goal. You, you can't just say, I'm going to do that. It, it has to be a goal set down. And then you have to say, OK, how am I going to how am I going to make that incorporate that into my routine so that it actually is something that I do? Well, for starters, you're going to write it down as a goal. For second, you're going to tell somebody else that's your goal. So now you're accountable. Could be your doubles partner. You know, uh, here's what I'm working on. Uh, I'm working on a mistake ritual in between points. So if I'm not doing this, I want you to tell me, hey, you know, you do your mistake ritual. So, you know, you start doing things. That's your system. Uh, you you process after the match. And, and when you when you do your notes, your match notes after the match, part of your notes are how how well did I do? How often did I do my mistake ritual? So these are all parts of, of you know, what Clear calls the system that help you reach your goals. And you do that for technique, things you're trying to learn, for strategy, for your mental and emotional, for everything, for conditioning, everything. Fantastic stuff, Peter. And just curious, like the, the, the physical box that you have, like, can you, what, is it like a trash can or like a cardboard box or how does that work? No, trash can is a great idea. <laughs> that, that actually takes it to a whole nother, another level, Maribond. <laughs> Thank you. No, that's great. I just, I just used a big cardboard box uh, and I wrote excuse box on it one, one season, boys season, when I was getting tired of, you know, I felt a raindrop or it's too hot out or I, mm. I love, I love this one for doubles players. You know, I'm really a singles player. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and or this isn't my racket. All of, you know, my shoes aren't fitting right. Every excuse you can think of. And so I wrote on this box, excuse box, and I don't have good handwriting, but I I wrote it on this box and, you know, put it out there and it was a medium sized box. And one of my players looked at it for a minute and he said, hmm, I've got more excuses than are going to fit in that little box. <laughs> so I went out and I got a big box and I wrote excuse box on it again in my poor handwriting. And to, to this day, um, whether it's boy season or girl season, um, players will occasionally sit or stand in the box, um, you know, when they feel particularly bad. And it's like this <laughs> cleansing <laughs> experience. Oh, wow. 
So in one girl season a few years ago, the girls decided that that box was so shabby and my handwriting so illegible. They made me a smaller box with beautiful lettering and they painted it and it's, wow. it's just wonderful. So now we have on the court two sizes of excuse boxes. We've got the beautiful small one that the girls gave me. If you have kind of average size excuses today, and we've got the big one for if you're supersizing your excuses and you really just have to do a whole body experience. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's a lot of fun. And the, the reason that it works, aside from, again, like bringing them over to the fence and saying, hey, you know, how lucky are you? Look at the sky, which is not doing anything to help them with their serving. It, it breaks the tension. It gets them laughing, smiling, having fun, getting out of the, the deadly seriousness of judging themselves and feeling bad about what they're doing. And it has this other in a team setting. And I know a lot of your you know, listeners are, are, are not on teams. A lot of them are on USDA teams, mm-hmm. um, particularly in a team setting. What happens is the, the team members start identifying what's an excuse themselves. Once I introduce the whole concept of no excuses and we have this excuse box, um, they they become their own enforcers of when they hear somebody whining and offering up anything other than taking personal accountability. Um, they say, ah, excuse box, excuse box. And so, and, and they're laughing. I mean, they're laughing when they're doing it. So it, it gets the point across and, and it makes for a uh, players who take more responsibility um, for their own actions. And uh, this extends to, you know, explaining to other people why you won or lost to yourself or to others. Um, I, and I tell them, and we, and we rehearse practicing saying this, that the only reason you lost a match is because today your opponent was better than you were. That's it. That doesn't mean we don't, you know, look at video or deconstruct with notes and and try and figure out what can we do differently next time to improve our play. Of course, we're we're breaking things down. But overall, what I want to hear if you tell me that you lost today is the reason you lost is your opponent was better. I mean, Rafa is, I use Rafa in the dollar as you know, a lot in my mm-hmm. book, because I think he and Roger does too, exemplifies the the honor and the learn and the compete, but particularly the honor in, in, in the game. And, and I love what, what he said after he lost to Roger right in the semifinals of Wimbledon this year. It, it hurt him. It was a tough loss. I mean, you could see it in his face in the press conference. Um, but when they asked him, why did you lose? He said, I didn't play well enough. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that's it. Mm-hmm. I didn't play well enough. That is taking responsibility. Uh, it wasn't the weather. It wasn't his shoes. It wasn't, you know, an argument he had with his girlfriend. He lost because Roger was better than him that day. That's all. Mm-hmm. And and that's so I think. And again, we, we still deconstruct and his team obviously does what they have to do to make it better the next time. But the, the initial and overarching response is simply my opponent played better than I did today. Exactly. Great stuff. Peter. And I know we've touched upon this a little bit, but I just want to ask you to hammer this down. As far as getting the mentality in your mind of improving instead of thinking about winning, like what tips do you have? I mean, or should we just be like reviewing our, our goals every day or like how can we get this mentality ingrained in our mind that we need to, to always be improving instead of always thinking about winning? Because it's definitely harder than it sounds. It, it is harder than it sounds. And let 
let me let, let me uh, pose a, a, a different or, or uh, put out a, a slightly different way of, of looking at it in in psychological research, um, which I do a lot of in statistics. Right. We have a confidence interval, the plus minus on either side of a, of a result. So, you know, 70 percent of people believe this. Well, the plus minus margin of, you know, three points either way. So it could be 67, the true answer. It could be 73% uh, of people believe this. Uh, but, you know, 70 is the average. Uh, in the same way, when when we're developing, uh, which is eternal as, as tennis players, the same way that, that uh, a master musician is always developing, um, a master architect, a, a surgeon, it doesn't matter what the field of endeavor is. Uh, there's a confidence interval around our, our performances. What we're trying to do, I think, with with our our study, our practice, um, our coaching, is to kind of narrow the gap between your very best day and your very worst day. We're trying to get the average up higher toward your toward your best day, but the reality is there's no such thing as perfection. When we say you know increase consistency, we don't mean never make a mistake. Um, you know, Rafa and Roger uh, win just a little bit more than half of their points. They they lose almost half of their points and they lose 20% one out of five of their of their games so they're losing you know a fair amount of time even at the very top of the game um, we at the amateur level lose a lot more than that uh, points and games so all we're trying to do when we're improving again is not the, the win loss but can I can I narrow at a higher average level the difference between my best day and my worst day and and that's all we're trying to do the other the other thing that I uh, advise my students is I'm not going to tell you not to judge yourself or evaluate yourself. We do that. People, human beings do that. Um, the less you do that, the better. But g getting to a process point and, and further away from a winning and losing point of reference, you can do one thing that will help. And that is to change your time frame of reference for um, the data that you use to judge yourself and evaluate yourself. Too often, what I see in, in the players I work with, and I know it's not it's not unique to that group of players, um, is they hit a bad shot and they're immediately, see, I told you I can't do that kind of response. Well, your t your frame of reference was this shot, <laughs> this this single shot. So let's start by, uh, can you can you think about over the last two weeks as a, as a frame of reference, okay? Blow on your hands and crumple that shot up and put it in the excuse box. If you have to evaluate yourself, yourself or judge yourself, yourself about that stroke. Um, what about the last two weeks? What about the last three months? What about the last six months? Where are you now compared to where you were then? Now, if you have your systems in place, you've been studying, you've been on the internet, you've been reading, you've been taking lessons, you've been practicing with a purpose, not just going out and hitting the ball around. If you've been doing all those system things to support your goal, then you actually should be better now than you were six months ago. That's the time frame I want you to use to judge yourself if you have to judge yourself. So it's a it's a process, Maribon, of, of, of trying to, you know, the, the Andy Murray's thing, uh, the, the match notes that got revealed a, a while back that he, he used in a, in a tournament a few years ago. And the very first one was be good to yourself, you know, for Andy Murray's match notes. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 
90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. So part of being good to yourself is, okay, if you can't completely suspend the judging yourself uh, as bad or good, depending on how you're playing today, uh, at least try and make the judgment based on a longer time frame of data. At least do that. Be good to yourself and give yourself a bigger time frame. Um, and that can help. That can help. Great stuff, Peter. Appreciate that. And yeah. also in your learn section, you mentioned that as a coach, the key is that you have to create the expectation and permission for your players to want to make errors. And, you know, to, to somebody, some people reading this, maybe it sounds strange for a player to want to make to, to want to make errors. So can you kind of expound upon uh, what you mean by this? Yeah. Uh, you know, we were my my wife, Martha, and I were at dinner with a friend last night and she said to her, you know, one of the things I got out of Peter's books was you have to cherish your mistakes. And I said, wow, I, I didn't say that. And she said, yeah, but that's what I got out of it. And, and that's a good way to put it. Um, it, you, you've got to really value making the mistakes uh, if you're trying to stretch. Um, the, the the reason you're making mistakes is that you're trying something different. Um, perfect example is for so many uh, rec level, level players is that so many of them have a waiter's tray serve, right? Where the... <laughs> There, there isn't much of a racket drop, and what there is is the strings facing the sky and, and going up toward the ball rather than the racket on edge and pronating only at the end uh, to, to get the strings facing the ball. Um, that's a really difficult switch to make um, to, to get out of that habit that they've done for years um, and, and, and get that new habit, and you're going to make tons of mistakes your contact with the ball is going to be terrible uh, at first. And you, you have to really value doing that because there is no shortcut. There is no shortcut. If you want to get better, you have to go through the mistakes. You have to stretch to an area of challenge the learning zone, okay, where you're not yet comfortable. You're, you're trying to get out of your comfort zone and not quite to the panic zone, right, where it's overwhelming. So you want a, the challenge to be a little bit more than you can handle that makes you stretch. And 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 you can't expect to do that without making the mistakes. So every mistake uh, tells you something. Uh, when you're serving and you're consistently hitting the ball into the net, that those you value, you cherish those mistakes because they're te- it tells you something about what you can improve. Your toss is probably too low. Or if it isn't too low to start with, you're not going up to meet the ball. You're letting it drop too low. So, but and, Or you're hitting down on the ball instead of hitting up, which a lot of rec players do on their serve. So it, the mistakes are illuminating. They, they enlighten you. If you can have the frame of mind to look at this, to not take it personally, but to look at it like a doctor or a clinician, a surgeon, a researcher, 
Um, it's data. That's all it is. You're, you're trying to be objective about it. Okay. Uh, the 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 surgeon who who makes a mistake uh, doesn't throw down their scalpel in disgust and walk away. They make a mistake. They immediately try and figure out how they can fix that mistake. The mistake tells them something. The bleeding out and where it's coming from tells them what they have to do now to fix it. So it's 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 really um, embracing uh, that there's no shortcut to, to doing this. Uh, and and I think part of uh, what we try and do uh, with the mental and the emotional in our practices, which I, I, I would like to see players do on their own with their hitting partners, and even if you're not on a team in an organized practice, is to create as much pressure in practice as, as we can so that mentally you have to respond with these um, compete, learn, honor, mental um, strengthening habits and, and deal with it the same way as you've got to create uh, pressure to make sure your second serve holds up um, in, in match pressure. You've got to make sure that your mental and emotional habits hold up, not just in practice, but in, in matches. And, and so that means practice. You've got to put pressure uh, on yourself. And, uh, and you do that in a lot of ways. We use um, uh, scoring variations a lot. Uh, and, you know, um, every game starts at, at 30 all um, and you're under pressure to that. That's that's it. And it, it counts. Um, you start the game uh, serving down 1540 uh, for the serving team and it counts. The result of this match counts in your rankings on the team. Uh, when the, the, the players always ask me, say, well, is this going to count? Of course it's going to count. Everything counts. Everything. And that produces pressure for them to 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 deal with both in terms of technique and in terms of mental and emotional response. And we talk about how to deal with it uh, and we, re- we rehearse it in practice. You've got to rehearse it. Um, so all of that is uh, embracing mistakes, embracing the pressure, um, wanting to make the mistakes and wanting to experience the pressure because that's going to make you better and more relaxed and have more fun during the match um, when things go wrong, as they always will. You know, uh, the old joke is you want to make God laugh. Tell God your plans. And, you know, <laughs> the same is true in tennis. You should have a plan, a match plan, a point plan, you know, have plans. But you better expect to adjust and adapt and, you know, modify those plans. And that's part of the fun of solving the puzzle of playing that match. And so that's all wrapped up in having a an embracing attitude about mistakes. Great stuff again, Peter. Appreciate that. And um, in your compete section, you talk about uh, why we should treat all points as big points. So one question I have yeah. for you about that is, I mean, is there a risk that if you do that, that, you know, some players might just think, oh, like, you know, this is just, I mean, I know it's 30 all, but it's like we always play at 30 all. And so this isn't really a big point. Like, is there any risk for if you always treat the points as big points that you might just lapse into knowing that it's not truly a big point? That's a really great, um, that's a really great observation, Maribon. And, and I suppose there is, there is that risk. Um, and, and, and it's difficult to do. It's challenging to do. It's, um, when you're first doing it, it's, it's exhausting to treat every point as a big point. Um, and that doesn't mean that all points are created equal. They're not. Um, you know, match points, set points, game points, uh, set up points, what Brad Gilbert used to call set up points, the point before <laughs> a game point. 
point? Uh, they're, they're big points. And, you know, Craig O'Shaughnessy shown, you know, that the statistics of winning, the odds of winning the game go up, uh, you know, many fold if you win the first point and especially the first two points of a game. So so there are uh, there are advantages to winning particular points. Um, so they're not all created equal. Um, what I mean about when I say all points are big points is I want you to look at every point as an opportunity. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're playing, well, you know, if I don't do well on this point, then there's always the next point. Uh, yes, I suppose you could, as you as you offered there, fall into that. Um, but the real focus I want you to, to maintain is every point's an opportunity for me. Every point's an opportunity for my opponent. Uh, it's a brand new start. And just as in year 6151, uh, where you were up and you you lost the match, we've all been there. If you've, if you've played tennis long enough, we've all blown big leads. And most of us have also been the beneficiaries of a blown big lead. And we've come back from a seemingly impossible deficit. So it's never over until you're shaking hands, right? But the reason it's never over, if you're coming back, you, you can't come back from 6-1 or 1-6-1-5 down on one point. Uh, and you can't come back by thinking far ahead about I have to win so many games in order to make a match out of this. You can only play one swing at a time and one point at a time. And if you can, if you can focus on on just that point and the the movement of your feet on that point, the the pattern of your breathing as you hit the ball, the split bounce hit kind of uh, tracking, whether you do it out loud or you know it's 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 just to yourself. Um, all of the focus that puts you right in that moment right now um, and do that point after point, when opportunity provides itself, opens itself up to you, you'll be ready to to take advantage of it. Because the thing is, when any sporting event's over, tennis included, usually the commentators will say something like, you know, the match really turned when blah, blah, blah. The game really turned around when and finished the sentence. But nobody knows when that turning point is when you're in it. I mean, you, you really don't know. Uh, you know it after the match in the postmortems. So every point could be the turning point of the match. In some matches, it's the very first point of the match. And how you approach that can get your opponent thinking, getting all messed up in him or herself. And, you know, that can change the whole match right there. In some matches, the turning point is, is the last point of a tiebreak. Most matches, it's somewhere in between. But you don't know when that turning point is. And if you're not thinking that every point is a big point, uh, an opportunity, then you're not ready to take advantage of that short ball that you got, okay? You're not ready to come in. You're not ready to see that your opponent is no longer moving laterally as well as he was at the beginning of the match. And so maybe you could, you know, hit behind him a little more often now. And so you've got to be ready and observing and in the moment to, to take advantage. And the only way you can do that is if you truly believe that every point um, has a big value to it. Fantastic stuff, Peter. Appreciate that. And um, in your compete uh, section of the book, one of your subchapters is entitled Think During Practice, Feel During the Match. And yeah. I was wondering, uh, you know, like as, as far as match play, why should we think less um, during matches and how does that help us? Well, there's a, a little, um, a slight amendment to that. And, and as I explain in the chapter, I don't mean that you're not thinking between points, you know, whether it's singles or doubles. You, you, you are thinking between points. You're quickly understanding what happened, what worked, what didn't work 
work, how that affects what your plan is for the next point, whether you're serving or returning and what your serve plus one or return plus one play is going to be. So you're you're thinking when I say feel during the match, I mean, while you're playing the point, while you're playing the point, I want you to be as instinctive as possible, trusting yourself, trusting your body, trusting your movement, trusting the, you know, the integration of the racket in your arm and and that you are one with the racket and you are, you know, you're playing the ball and you're you're just gracefully in a balanced way flying around the court. Uh, it's all about physical sensation and trusting body uh, movement, body awareness at that moment. If you start thinking uh, while you're playing the point, then your your reaction time is is severely limited. And as you know, particularly as you, you get up 4045 levels, the reaction time you have to the speed of the ball coming in uh, and how smartly that ball is placed is really minimal. <laughs> I mean, you know, at 100 miles an hour, you've got less than a half a second to react to a serve if you're the returner. And if you're volleying at the net, you, it, it's all just these nanosecond responses. So you, you can't get to feeling, though. Here's the point. You can't get to that level of feeling in the match if you have not broken it down robotically into segments and really being thoughtful in practice. You have to be full of thoughts in practice to be free of thoughts while you're playing match points. And, and by that, I mean, in the practice, uh, break your forehand down into all the segments that there are in that preparation. OK, it starts with the tracking your eyes first, as Jose Higueras um, says in USTA player development. It, we, we hit the ball with the racket with our hands. But the order in which everything gets processed is eyes, feet, hands. So the hands are just the last thing. So you, you, you've got to see what's going on. You've got to place the racket in the correct position. You've got to drop it below the ball. You have to have the right swing pad or the right grip for what you're trying to do. All of these segments, you've, you've got to really consciously, cognitively rehearse them, being aware of them um, and, and verbalizing what you're doing out loud, uh, I, I find really helps. You've got to do shadow movements, whether in a mirror or, or just on the court or in your bedroom or wherever. But you've got to do all these things which take conscious thought uh, in order to stitch them together by match time for something that is more flowing and integrated and instinctive. And that's that's how it has to work. And again, there's no shortcut. You can't you can't just float around in your practice sessions hitting the ball uh, without breaking it down and understanding what you're doing and and what the result is on the other side of the court. And and then trying to get as repeatable a a swing path, a repeatable a a set of segments of a stroke as you possibly can, which reduces your your unforced errors, increases your consistency. All that requires conscious effort. Period. Thanks for that, Peter. Appreciate that. And uh, so kind of an example, sometimes when I have a match or when I'm playing a match, like uh, maybe my opponent will hit a short ball. And then, you know, while it's in the air, I think to myself, oh, I, you know, is he I think he's going to go this way. So 
so I'm going to hit it that way. I mean, is that sort of thinking like okay or optimal? Because sometimes in those situations when I'm thinking like that, I end up missing the ball. So I don't know, like, is that is that like uh, okay in your opinion? Or do you think that we should just, that should be more of like an instinctive, like natural, uh, like immediate thought process or, or instinct process? Well, it's a great question. And, you know, it's like, it's like the issue of, of judging ourselves. Um, we, we, we think, I mean, we have functioning brains. So um, we, you know, one of your um, podcasts with Jeff Salzenstein was about, you know, he was emphasizing that the power of words, right? And words are powerful in, in part because they're so, you know, pervasive in, in our lives. We think, we talk to ourselves. That's the whole reason for why positive self-talk is such an important, you know, uh, mental and emotional strengthening habit. Um, so, so these thoughts are going to, um, they're going to pop up like that. Uh, it, it's the, the, the challenge is, is trying to permit your, your first instinct for your body to move your first step, uh, to have practiced this so many times, practice the short ball, you know, and getting to the short ball and practice what you're comfortable with more than anything. What's your strength? You know, um, the more the more you try and change what your instinctive thought was. Okay, if I'm running up to the short ball on the ad side, uh, I'm probably not going to attack it me as much with my backhand as my forehand, um, my forehand's better. And I have closer to the net, a little better feel for the slice, the, the touch of that ball, and maybe just dropping it softly over the net and with a little inside out move. So I would favor, I would instinctively favor that. And even if I saw my opponent moving in that direction, they still have to deal with my ball. You know, um, if I then start, to, oh, my opponent's moving in that direction and I start trying to change my body and either flip, you know, get under it now instead of slicing it softly, I'm going to top spin it cross court and I'm close to the net or I'm going to be worse. I'm going to try and do something backhand, a slice backhand down the line away from my opponent. That's disaster in, in most cases. I'm not good enough to do that. Most of us aren't. Um, so I would say, uh, and I do say to my players, trust your first instinct. Okay. If it doesn't work out, make a note of that. Okay. But it's almost always worse if you're changing your mind in mid-stroke. Have I done that? And has it worked? Yes. I mean, sometimes it does. You, you see your opponents moving really quickly and you've got time, even if it's just a split second, but you've got time to hit behind them. Sure. There are moments when that that kind of thinking helps, but as a general rule, I would I want players to be as free of of processing thoughts during their movement and during their playing of the point as possible, and relying on on the instinct and the feel that they've created through hours and hours and hours of practice and thousands and thousands of balls and specific practice on very specific situations, you know, like the one you mentioned, very specific, or practicing being pulled wide and what your options are there and what you tend to do or, or want to do because of your strengths. You know, uh, at that point, you shouldn't be inventing things that you don't really feel 
feel strong. You should be going to your strengths to take advantage of those moments. So, so that's how I look at it. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, Peter. Yeah, you know, the more you practice situations, more it'll be automatic during matches, and that's what we want to have. So that's yeah. Stuff. And, and I think I think the the point here, Maribon, is that we're we're mentioning this several times is that. All of this is simply trying to do these things. Um, no one can be completely free of thoughts. No one can be completely free of judgment and self-evaluation. You know, no one can be completely free of, of a passing feeling of negativity or being down about something. I mean, we're human beings. We're, you know, that's part of being good to yourself is accepting that these feelings happen and they're okay and they're normal and you're okay and you're normal. Um, just as, as much as we accept that the nervousness before a match, um, the nervousness before serving a match out. All of that's normal, and it's because we care about, you know, what we're doing. And and something would be wrong if we, we didn't care. So all of these things are just, you're trying. And that's why we get back to improving. You never reach a a, to- a goal of total control uh, over any of this. You, you, you reach successive goals of trying to get better at each of these things. And... Uh, and that's that's good enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really love that you mentioned that. I mean, I, for example, I've been meditating for a couple of years now, and uh, the goal is always to, uh, for my particular uh, mode of meditation, to to not have uh, outside thoughts come in. But it, it happens, and you know, you just yes. have to accept it. And the main thing is that you can that you return to to your breathing, for example. Um, but the, but the thoughts always come, so uh, makes a lot of sense there. Appreciate it. And uh, you know, the, the sport, as I've mentioned uh, several times, and other podcasts and and I'm sure of course you you know uh, there's so many different facets and even though your book is about the mental and emotional side of tennis you actually devote a subchapter to physical fitness and I wanted to ask you why you found it important to do that well for starters the the being mentally strong uh, is a lot more difficult if you're feeling physically wiped out uh, it, it can be done and you know the the irony is that some of us play our very very best when we're really tired. And, and and that's partly because when we're really tired, uh, we're more relaxed. We don't have the energy to fight ourselves. <laughs> and we, our, our exhaustion has helped us win the battle against ourselves uh, to some extent. And so there is that, that phenomenon of playing looser and more relaxed and more instinctively when you're really tired. Uh, but overall, um, you're going to have an easier time being strong mentally and emotionally and uh, um, feeling like you're, you can play all points as big points. Feeling positive about the moment that you're in. If you're energized, and it's hard to have energy uh, if you haven't eaten right, if you haven't had lots of water and you know sport drink available during the match, but lots of water during the the day leading up to your play. Uh, if you haven't slept well, uh, if you are you know dealing with lots of other things uh, that are affecting your um, physical um, apparatus. Um, you, you you feel sluggish and mentally um, you're going to be sluggish as well, um, by and large, if you're feeling physically weaker or more sluggish. So I think it's really, um, it's really important uh, for those reasons to pay attention to your conditioning and your physicality. Uh, obviously, it helps with specific sport-specific um, behaviors. I mean, uh, moves. Uh, if if your triceps are are in bad shape, your serve isn't going to have the pop that it could have. 
you're not going to have the kind of racket drop that you you could have if if you're you know got better triceps and if if your whole um, arm and shoulder um, and upper back are not both both strong and flexible, mm-hmm. you're not going to have the looseness to to get the speed on the racket. So, so all these things, um, the footwork, uh, practicing interval training and not just long distance endurance um, running or elliptical or stairmaster um, doing interval because the tennis is an interval sport. It's it's a sport of explosion and rest. So you've got to train explosion and rest, not continuous running at the same speed. That you know that does something for longer matches, yes, but it does nothing to uh, increase the 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 speed with which you process oxygen and get rid of the pollutants uh, in your lungs and recover um, respiratory system and, and musculoskeletal system wise um, in, in that, you know, 10 seconds on, 20 seconds off rhythm of a, of a tennis match. Um, so you, you got to train that way. For sure, for sure, Peter. And uh, I've, I've done some great uh, interviews, if I do say so myself, I guess, um, but with uh, with some great fitness experts such as Dr. Mark Kovacs, Todd Ellenbecker, right. uh, Dominic King, Dean Hollingworth, and many others uh, as well. So yeah, definitely um, definitely an important part of the game overall. And I, I really appreciate that you did touch upon the link between uh, physical fitness for tennis and uh, the mental and emotional side. Um, so uh, Peter, uh, I mean, you've really been enjoying this conversation conversation and uh, just just a pleasure to have you on like I mentioned where can we go to get your book mental and emotional training for tennis uh, you can get it at Amazon uh, you can get it at coacheschoice.com uh, those people who are USPTA uh, members or even if you're not you can get it on the USPTA pro shop site they're selling it as well um, and you can uh, find out more about me uh, and my background and my my work in tennis and otherwise at uh, coach scales.uspta.pro.com. Great stuff, uh, Peter. And do you, you also have uh, your own website? Is that right? Uh, drscales.com? Is that right? Uh, drpeterscales.com mm-hmm, is Dr. scholarly. That's my scholarly website. Uh, if people want to uh, get into a little bit more about what I've done in positive youth development and the research I've, and writing I've done uh, around the world um, is obviously fed into um, what I do with, with tennis and the work I do mostly with, with juniors, uh, junior players. Um, so yeah, if they're interested in that, it's uh, drpeterscales.com. Awesome. Appreciate that. And uh, are there any social profiles or platforms that you that you have up there that you uh, would want us to connect uh, with? Uh, it's mostly the uh, USPTA uh, website. I, I've, I've not been as active as I could be uh, on the uh, social media, but uh, I'm, I'm trying to get better. Yeah, so am I. It's, uh, it's really a bear to work <laughs> with sometimes. Quite good. You're already quite good at it, Marathon. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I guess it's all relative, but I appreciate it. And yeah. uh, and and Peter, so so again, just a wonderful interview. Appreciate it. What is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis game? And of course, you can tailor it to the mental and emotional side if you'd like. I, I would say one thing overall that your attitude, your effort, um, the joy you have in tennis, all of that is a choice. It's a choice you make, and you can choose 
refuses to work hard, uh, as Rafa says, to enjoy to work, <laughs> enjoy to work hard uh, at the game. Or you can choose to be just where you are and stay there. Um, you know, you can you can choose to have a positive um, attitude, positive self-talk, uh, attitude of gratitude uh, or not. Um, you can choose to be humble and curious and eager to learn or you can be arrogant about what you know and feel like, you know, hey, I've reached this level. I'm, I'm really fantastic. And, you know, people below me can't teach me anything. Um, you, you can, you know, think only of yourself or you can respect your opponent and what you're creating together. Uh, all these things are choices. You know, you can you can prepare diligently to drink a lot of water. So you're you're not only drinking when you're thirsty, you're fully energized and present physically as well as mentally. All these are choices. So don't tell me that you don't have a choice. You have a choice. And you'll you'll never be, and no one will, Rafa, Roger, no one will be a, a perfect tennis master. That's the beauty of the sport. We all always have stuff to learn. It's never ending. That's why it's never boring. That's why it's always enriching. And uh, have that approach to the, the game. And you'll not only play this game for life, you'll enjoy it for life. And that's the most important thing of all. Very wise words, Peter. Uh, again, thanks for all that you do for the game and you're really making a huge difference in in people's lives and uh you know children and adults both and uh and a lot of what uh, the principles that you're teaching definitely transfer over to uh, everyday life as well um so again huge huge impact and thank you for that and all the links that we mentioned including of course peter's book mental and emotional training for tennis uh those links will be on the show notes page um so uh, i will uh, drop down a link for that uh, actually it'll be a tennis Foz.com slash 106. But again, Peter, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it and all the best to you. And hopefully we'll uh, meet in person soon and keep up the great work. Well, thanks, Maribon. Thanks for having me. And thank you for uh, all you do with TennisFiles.com and your tennis summits. I mean, they're just, uh, I every year I have tons of notes that I take and I, I refer back to them all the time. So you're doing great stuff for, for all of us. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Peter, for the kind words and uh, all the best. Have a great one. Yeah, you too. Thanks, Maribon. Bye now. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Dr. Peter Scales. And Peter, really appreciate you coming on to the show to enrich our knowledge about the mental and emotional side of training for tennis. And if you are interested in picking up Peter's book, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash 106 to check out all of the links that I mentioned during the show today. And also, I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that on iTunes, Spotify, or or any other podcast app that you use to listen to the show. And in addition, I would like to leave you with a quote, as I often love to do at the end of the show. And this one is by yet another unknown author. And the quote is, adventure may hurt you, but monotony will kill you. Very interesting quote there. All right. I really do appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I actually just came off a whole week at the City Open. I interviewed about, I think, seven players or so. 
and recorded um, the championship press conference of Nick Kyrgios and, of course, snapped a ton of pictures and did a lot of sharing on social media and such and really enjoyed it. Uh, It's really a privilege to get media credentials every single year to the City Open uh, near my home. In uh, It's in D.C. And a lot of great playing, uh, really impressive stuff. And, I mean, nine straight days at the tournament. It definitely is pretty tiring, especially with a couple of the days uh, where I actually just went there straight from work. But I actually did take three days off this year during the latter half of the tournament so that I could rest and not just be a zombie at work. So it was great, great experience. And looking forward already to next year and also to, to maybe add a couple more tournaments to the schedule. I mean, that's not my main thing, you know, covering tournaments, but I do like to go to at least the City Open every year to try my hand for the week at being a a journalist slash videographer slash interviewer and whatnot, which I mean, I do a lot of interviews with the podcast, so that's really helped me on that front. But I can't believe it's actually been five years in a row that I've done that. And it's it's really great to connect with the players and especially to go to the, uh, the players party on Monday. That's where I get to meet a lot of players when they're more relaxed and have a chat and uh, actually went with my dad this year. I was able to bring him so that was really cool and uh, yeah I mean just just great stuff. It's always great to be around tennis for me. It's definitely my passion and I love doing it and I mean even though it's a lot of work it, it really doesn't feel like like work to me and when that's the case then you know you've found something that is really worth doing. So with that, I really appreciate all your support and all your kind words and all the emails that you've been sending me. I I got a couple today and uh, yeah, I'm going to keep going, of course, and uh, please look forward to a lot of great things for the podcast coming up and a lot of great interviews on the Pike coming on the Pike. Is that right? Anyways, (laughs) all the best to you. Keep improving your game every single day as much as you can. I mean, even 1% every single time you're out there planning on what you need to do to improve your game the most that that's what is going to propel you forward and help you enjoy the game and as peter said compete learn and play the game honorably so all the best and i'll see you on the next episode of the tennis files podcast take care everyone thanks for listening to the tennis files podcast for more tips to help you improve your tennis game visit tennisfiles.com